question that I would like to address this evening is one that perhaps you have been wondering about today. And that is, why do we practice? That thought perhaps has entered your mind a couple of times. Why do we do this? Why do we come to this kind of environment and place and subject ourselves to this ordeal? Why do we practice? It's a question worth reflecting upon because often our energy can become dissipated or scattered if we lose our sense of purpose, if we forget why it is that we do this, it undermines our efforts. And so to have a clear vision or a clear understanding and be aligned with that sense of purpose can give us a renewed source of energy as we go through the difficulties that we face. Why do we practice? I think the many different reasons or motivations that we each have come down in some sense to a desire to understand ourselves in a more complete way. To understand the nature of this mind and of this body. To understand what it is in our lives and in our experience that creates happiness that is the cause of happiness. And what it is in our lives and in our experience that creates suffering, both for ourselves and for other people. And it's not enough to know it in an abstract fashion or to know it as an intellectual concept. The reason for practice, the reason for meditation, is so that we can come to a very intimate understanding of the nature of our being, the nature of who we are, so that we know these, we know these questions. We begin to resolve these questions for ourselves. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses of his teachings, in the very first verse, said that the mind is the forerunner of all things. And mind in this sense does not mean simply intellect. Mind in the Buddhist sense is more inclusive. It means consciousness and everything contained or arising with consciousness. Thoughts, emotions, images, feelings, awareness, different levels of silence, intuition, all are included in the word mind. Mind is the forerunner of all things. When we look and investigate and explore our experience, we see that it all has its origin in the mind. And when we take a physical object, a bell or this building or cities, All of that arose out of a certain vision in a person's mind. Our relationships, our families, our structures in society all arise out of the mind. The mind is this enormously creative, productive energy, producing sometimes tremendous joy and sometimes tremendous suffering. But the root is within the mind. So our task then is to understand it. And the way of understanding is to look, to look carefully and precisely. So we sit down, we start paying attention, and we look at our minds. What do we find? Mostly a mess. (laughs) We find this incredible jumble and tangle 
of thoughts and emotions and feelings and likes and fears and attachments and aversions and preferences and likes and dislikes and judgments and on and on and on. So then as we begin to look at this, as we begin to look at our minds and look at the entanglements and look at the confusion, we then can ask ourselves, is there a way to come to some sort of clarity, to come to some sort of balance, some sort of peace? And that can only come about if we're willing to look at and explore the nature of all these different elements, of all these different forces. If we don't look, if we don't understand them, then we simply stay enslaved by all of those particular kinds of conditioning. One of the first insights that comes in practice Now, this place is called the Insight Meditation Society. And so you may rightfully expect that some insight should arise. Well, one of the first insights that comes, and perhaps an essential one to acknowledge from the beginning, is that this is a very difficult path. First big insight. It's not easy. It's necessary to understand that so that we don't set up false expectation or false hopes that somehow we're going to cruise into enlightenment. The Buddha talked of this path of practice. He said that if you could imagine being on a battlefield surrounded by a thousand warriors and single-handedly you conquered those thousand warriors and you did that a thousand different times, conquering a thousand warriors a thousand times, that would be easier than doing what we're doing. So if you had some difficulties today, (laughs) you shouldn't be surprised because it is an enormously difficult task Our mind has been conditioned so incredibly deeply for so long, certainly throughout this lifetime and perhaps for many, many lifetimes, the patterns of wanting, of desire, of fear, of aversion, of anger, of resistance, all these patterns are very strong in the mind. And so when we come and try to begin to train the mind, to be aware, to be attentive, to be present. It's not an instant process. It's a process of training. So it takes a tremendous amount of patience and a tremendous amount of perseverance. Understanding that it's a difficult task that's being undertaken. There are three aspects of the meditation practice which I'd like to talk about this evening because they highlight different ways in which our understanding grows. These three different aspects have to do with opening up in us what is closed and balancing in us what is reactive, and investigating what is hidden. Opening up what is closed, what is closed in us. As we sit and pay attention, we begin to see that our bodies are quite closed, physical energy is blocked very often, and our senses, our sense perceptions are quite dulled. The doors of perception, as Huxley said, are not very clear, are not very pristine. As we sit from the simple activity 
of paying attention to the breathing, we begin to be aware of the enormous amount of or the accumulation of tension in the body or armoring in the body. Some of the pain and tension that you might feel has to do simply with an unaccustomed sitting posture. But there's a much deeper level of tension and armoring and tightness that we've accumulated in our lives because of a reactive mind. Because we haven't lived our lives in total balance, in total awareness, we accumulate every action of greed, every action of anger, accumulates some knot, some tension. And so as we sit and begin to pay attention, we begin to feel this. We begin to feel and to experience what we've actually been carrying around all our lives. It's not particularly that the meditation is creating this, but rather we are becoming aware of it, becoming aware of it in a much more sensitive and direct way. But right at this point, a difficulty arises. Right at this point of awareness, of the accumulation of tension, of stress, of armoring, of dullness, And that has to do with our reaction or our attitude about this perception. How do we feel when we begin to experience the amount of tension that we're carrying? What is the reaction of the mind to that? There are certain common attitudes or reactions which many of us feel. Sometimes we feel self-pity. You're sitting and you begin to feel all the tightness in the body, the back hurts and the legs hurt and the neck hurts. And the mind doesn't feel very alert. And very often the mind begins to generate self-pity. Poor me. I can't do this. Everybody else is in blissful samadhi and only I hurt. And we begin to wallow in that kind of self-pity. That's one reaction. That's one attitude. It's not very helpful. Another attitude that is quite common is that of fear. We've been conditioned very often to be afraid to feel discomfort, afraid to feel pain, afraid to be uncomfortable. And so as we begin to feel it in ourselves, if this reaction is prevalent of fear, what happens? We begin to contract, we begin to pull away from it. We don't like to open to it. And of course, the more fear there is, if we don't know how to handle it, the more contraction, the more pulling away, the more tight we get. We're just tying knot upon knot. And so, just like self-pity, fear is not a very practical, not a very effective response, even though it may be a strong habit. It doesn't work very well for us. There's a third attitude of mind, which is often quite prevalent, and that is apathy. And we've been going along in our lives for so long, and it more or less works, We function, most of us, most of the time. And we can get into a very apathetic state of mind where we don't have the interest or the energy or the motivation or the commitment to begin to face actually what's in our experience, to explore and, and go deep into it. We come up against this first layer of discomfort or tension or unpleasantness, and we can get apathetic and not care and just pull away. So these attitudes are, it's important to become aware of them if they're arising in the mind, so as not to get caught by them, as not to become identified with them, because they can become great obstacles. They don't allow 
for the opening of what's closed. They don't allow for the untying of the knots. So we sit, we watch our breath, and we become aware of these different kinds of knots or tensions. How then is it possible to open up what's closed in us, to allow for a greater free flow of energy? The qualities of mind which allow for this opening have to do with qualities of mindfulness, of acceptance, of allowing. This mindfulness has two aspects in this regard. The first aspect has to do with softening the mind. If our mind is very tight and very rigid, very controlling, it's very difficult then to allow for the knots, the energy knots that we're holding to untie. We're simply holding them in tighter. So what we want to do is to cultivate an attitude of tremendous softness. Being soft, being allowing, being accepting. For example, with the breathing, what that means is not controlling the breath, not trying to make it a particular way, but being with it as it is. And sometimes it might be quite fast, sometimes very slow, sometimes it might even be quite forced, not intentionally forcing it, but it's just happening that way. Can we allow for that to be there? so that we don't get involved in a struggle. Mindfulness is not struggling. Mindfulness has to do with allowing. So we soften, we relax. We settle back into what's actually happening. We open up. We're willing to be with whatever it is that's presenting itself. Whether it's the different manifestations of the breath, different sensations in the body, we soften. And this softening makes possible the second aspect of mindfulness, which is a very accurate and careful noticing of what is actually there. We begin to look very closely at experience in each moment. We begin to see the characteristics of experience. So we soften, we relax, we become allowing, and then we look carefully, or we feel carefully. Probably sometime during the day, at least once, you were probably bored the breath, in and out, rising, falling. It's so boring. You know, just over and over and over again. But why is it boring? When you stop to reflect, this breath, there's an amazing phenomenon going on. We can go without food for a fair amount of time. We can go without water. Try going without breath, without breathing. How long could you last? Not very long. It's so intimately connected with our life force, with our life energy. It's not a boring process. It's one of the most vital processes involved in our being. And so if we're bored watching the breath, I would suggest that it's not the fault of the breath. Perhaps it has to do with the quality of our boring mind, (laughs) which means, in this context, that we're not paying careful attention. That it has to do with the quality of our attention, the closeness of our attention. And we're not very much in the habit of a very careful attention. We go through life more or less skimming the surface of things, And so the practice is a way of refining our perception, of making it very close and very detailed and very microscopic. 
And as we do that, as we practice that quality, things become very interesting. The breath becomes very interesting. Each sensation in the body, all the different feelings and thoughts and emotions and images. Because we're taking care with our awareness, we're taking care with our noticing. So mindfulness has these two aspects, softening, which means allowing things to be there, not feeling self-pity, not contracting out of fear, not being apathetic, opening to what's present, and then with a great deal of care, with a great deal of closeness, seeing what actually is going on. What are the sensations of the breath? And we can be with the in and out or the rising and falling, but can you also describe very accurately what sensations you feel with each breath? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it tingling? Is it pressure? Is it throbbing? Is it pulsing? Is it heavy? Is it light? That's the kind of investigation. That's the kind of careful looking, which is longer the in-breath or out, or the rising and falling? Is it rough? Is it smooth? Is it a continuous movement? Does it go in little jumps? All of these are ways of investigating, ways of looking. It's through the power of this awareness that we begin to open up, we begin to untie the energy blocks, we begin to untie the knots, we begin to release and let go of the accumulation of tension and tightness that we've been carrying. So this one aspect of practice is opening what's closed, opening up the energy flow, which results in a tremendously enhanced quality of vitality. What we are is an energy system. This mind and body is an energy system. We're not so connected with it. We're not so connected with this body and mind as being that. But through the power of our awareness, through the power of our attention, we begin to feel and to experience this as an energy system. And that has a tremendously vitalizing effect on the quality of our lives. It's as if we begin to wake up. Opening what is closed. Balancing what is reactive. That's the second aspect of what we're doing. What is it that's reactive? Our minds are reactive. Our minds are very reactive. Things arise in our experience, in our awareness, and instead of simply being aware of what it is, we have these strong, deeply conditioned habit patterns. I like this, I don't like that. Aversion, judgment, fear, clinging, condemning, preferences, opinions, comments. Have you noticed how often The mind has a comment about everything. Once we got a note, the yogi notes are wonderful because they're such a wonderful reflection of the mind at work. Once we got a note, it was addressed to the office, asking from this one yogi who, who was asking that the person in front of them not wear the coat that they were wearing because it was too distracting. <laughs> Yogi mind at work. And we all have it. And whenever, whenever we say it, it's like the mind starts um, magnifying right? all of these little quirks. So don't be surprised as that begins to happen because it will. 
But try and be mindful of it. And not to get so caught or so lost in this strong reactive pattern. To pay attention to the different ways we relate to experience. Whether it's our own internal experience or experience in the environment of other people. We want to balance. The mind is something like a balance scale. You know, and for the most part it's going like this. Right? All day long, liking and disliking, clinging and condemning. And it's no wonder then that we get so tired because our mind is in this constant state of movement. What we can do in the practice is to begin to balance the scale so the reactions get less and less and less. It doesn't mean that things stop happening, but rather the mind can come to a place of stillness, to a place of poise, a state of equilibrium, which allows for the arising and passing of phenomena, but without the movement to grab onto without the movement to resist or push away. When we observe experience, on any level, we see that different phenomena or each kind of phenomena of experience has its own kind of rhythm. We can see rhythm in nature very easily. The rhythm of the seasons or the rhythm of day and night. There's rhythm in music, and rhythm in sport, and rhythm in dance. There's also a rhythm of our inner experience. There's a rhythm to the arising and passing away of the breath and sensations and images and emotions and thoughts. If we can settle back, allow the mind to become soft and receptive and precise in its noticing, we begin to discover for ourselves this inner rhythm of experience. And it's the opening to this rhythm that's within us which allows us to make effort in the practice without struggle. When there is struggle going on in our practice, what does that mean? Struggle is a tremendously useful feedback. When we're sitting or walking or going through the day and there's a feeling of struggle, What that means is that we are not open to or we are not allowing our present experience to be there. We're fighting with it. We're resisting it. We want it to be different. And so when there's a sense of struggle, if we can recognize it as a feedback rather than simply being lost in it, we can remind ourselves a good Vipassana mantra It's okay. Whatever it is, whether it's the quality of the breath or certain sensations in the body, it's okay. It's okay. Settle back, open up, and in that awareness of what's present, there's no struggle, there's no conflict. And that allows for this natural rhythm of our being to unfold. But it takes a lot of practice because we've become habituated to struggle through our reactiveness. We struggle to hold on things. We struggle to push things away. And it's a very strong habit. So we have to practice. We have to cultivate and develop this sense of it's okay. This sense of allowing. This sense of gentleness. What this means is that we must develop an appreciation 
for every part of our experience. Because usually what we do is try to have certain kinds of experience, those that are pleasant and nice and fun and comfortable and easy. And we try to avoid the other side of experience, which may be painful and difficult or abrasive or frustrating. But the path of practice is to open up to the totality of our being. It's not simply to create a nice, comfortable little space for ourselves. That's not the purpose of this practice. The purpose is to open up to the full range. To the totality of who we are. And that means that we must be willing to be accepting of all the uncomfortable things as well as all the nice feeling things. Not only to open up to it in a way that's tolerating, because tolerating is really another form of resistance. That's not really openness. We have to come to a sense of interest, of appreciation of all of these different aspects. And so, especially the first, the first days of a retreat, although the difficulties don't necessarily disappear, they just change form as the retreat goes on. But in the beginning, the first few days, the difficulties are often quite outstanding. Is it possible, instead of struggling with them, to take interest in them? So when you're sitting and there's pain in the body, instead of pulling away, instead of contracting, is it possible to go into that? To really explore, to see what actually is going on? What's the quality of these sensations? What happens as I observe them? Developing the sense of interest in the whole range, the full scope, the full spectrum of what comes up. Sometimes it's very difficult, sometimes it might be quite enjoyable. There is one principle of practice, one basic principle, which if you understand well, will save you a tremendous amount of grief and struggle. And so the first night is a good night to remind you. And this principle of practice is that what's important is not what it is that's happening, but how we are relating to it. What we are practicing is a relationship to experience. There's a very important difference between cultivating a particular experience that we want to hold on to, which is a setup for suffering because inevitably it's going to change. It's a great difference between that and cultivating a balanced relationship to whatever it is that comes up. To develop certain qualities of mind that can be there, whether the situation is painful and difficult or happy and pleasant, that's what we're practicing. And so we take whatever it is that arises as as a situation of practice. There is nothing which arises which is outside of our practice. And so as you go through the difficulties that arise for everybody in the beginning, don't put those difficulties outside of the practice, but rather turn the attention, become aware, become mindful of those particular aspects of what's happening. So we open what's closed. We balance what's reactive. 
we investigate what is hidden. What is it that's hidden from us? Amazingly enough, what is hidden from us are some fundamental aspects of the truth, some fundamental aspects of reality. As an example of this, and we'll develop it further as the retreat goes on, beginning to understand the difference between our concepts about things and our direct experience. What do you hear? I hear a bell. We don't hear a bell. Bell is a concept. Bell is an idea. Bell is a word. The ear does not hear words. Sound. There's a certain sound. We're hearing the sound. There's a certain vibration to that. And then very quickly the mind puts a concept onto that. So we say we hear the bell. Now, what do you see? See a hand. We don't see a hand. What the eye sees is color and form and light and shadow. That's what it sees and then immediately it puts a concept on it, hand. We think we see hand. Go up to anybody on the street. Do this, what do you see? Almost everybody will say, see a hand. Because we live so much in the world of concepts that it's very difficult to drop down to the level of actual experience. It's essential. It is an essential part of what we're doing here, of training the mind to drop levels, to go from the level of words and ideas and concepts about things to the direct intuitive experience of things as they are. Because that's where the nature of reality is going to be revealed. It's not going to be revealed by thinking about things. There's another Vipassana mantra. First one is, it's okay. The second one, which will also serve you well if you can remember it, is that for the purpose of the retreat, and I don't mean to imply that this is necessarily true throughout our lives, but for the purpose of the retreat, nothing is worth thinking about. Nothing is worth thinking about. That doesn't mean that thoughts are not going to come, because I think you have already seen that they will in quite large amounts. But often we delude ourselves into thinking that certain ideas are worth thinking about as we're meditating. Because the mind gets so creative. You're sitting and a little bit of quiet begins to come and the great American novel starts to emerge. (laughs) Or you start solving your relationship problems that have been plaguing you for the last 30 years. <laughs> or, you know, you start building this you know, dream house, whatever. We all have our own particular. I used to, I used to design meditation centers. <laughs> I did. I spent long before I knew, you know, this was going to evolve. My mind would just get lost in these. That is not meditation, it's fantasy, it's daydreaming. It's getting lost. Even thoughts about the Dharma, that's a very seductive kind of thought. Because you start reflecting about experience, about what's going on. And one could spend a long time, you could spend many sittings thinking about your experience. And it deludes us into thinking that the meditation is going well because it goes so, the sitting goes so quickly. You know, the hour goes so fast and you feel quite energized and happy. Nothing is worth thinking about. 
because the level of insight, the different levels of insight that can arise from practice do not come on the level of thought. It comes on the level of intuition, of intuitive, direct experience or tasting of how things are. So again, it doesn't mean that thoughts are not going to arise, but it's a reminder to you when you become aware, not to choose to continue, not to choose to follow them, not to choose to stay lost in them, because they're not serving the practice. So investigating what's hidden, we go from the level of ideas and thoughts and concepts to the level of direct, direct experience. We begin to discover certain things. We begin to discover intuitively certain aspects of our experience. One of the things that we begin to see and to know directly is that everything is changing all the time. And what's so interesting is that we all know that intellectually. And you go up to anybody and you ask them, you know, do things change? And everybody very sagaciously nods their heads. We know it in our mind, we know it in our concepts, in our intellect, but we have not integrated that understanding. We don't know it here. Because if we really knew that things were changing, things changing all the time, instant to instant, the mind wouldn't cling, it wouldn't grasp. But we clasp and we, we cling and we get attached to things because we haven't fully realized that the nature of things is to change. It's not just that some things change and not others. It's all in a state of constant flux. And so the practice allows us to see it, to feel it, to know it deeply in ourselves. And there's tremendous liberating power from that insight. Because the deeper we understand, not conceptually, but directly, the deeper we understand the momentariness of phenomena, the less the mind holds on. The less attachment, the less suffering. That's one kind of investigation of what's hidden. We begin to uncover or explore the insecurity of phenomena. Now, how many ways in our lives do we try to make ourselves secure? We make ourselves secure materially or you know, secure with our bodies, secure in relationships. As if there is some kind of essential security that we can find and hold on to, which is going to bring us happiness. And Alan Watts, in one of his books, he had a very wonderful book, which he called The Wisdom of Insecurity. So when we see, understand the insecurity and don't grasp, don't hold on so much, then we get into a much more harmonious flow with the process of change. And it doesn't mean that we don't take care of things. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of our bodies. And it doesn't mean that we don't take care of our relationships or our jobs. But we can do it without a compulsive attachment or holding on. But it doesn't come from a decision. It comes from a clear seeing. And so that's what our practice is about. We pay attention to the nature of our experience moment to moment until the reality or the truth of the impermanence and the insecurity in each moment becomes very obvious. It's not believing what anybody says. and It's not creating some kind of idea in the mind. It's seeing it for ourselves. And the last aspect that's explored in practice, and in some way it is the jewel of the practice, the jewel of the teachings, the most subtle, 
and the most liberating is to come to an increasingly deeper understanding of the selfless nature of this process, of this mind and body. To see that experiences is arising and passing, but does not belong to anybody. That what we are is a process of changing experience. It's not that there's someone who's having it, or holding it, or containing it. And to the degree that we can understand the selflessness of this process, to that degree, there's less alienation and less separation. Because as long as there's a self, as long as there's a sense of I, of me, of mine, then there's other, other than me, other than self. And so we, we live in a state of duality, of separation, of alienation. And that's what, that's what makes for so much frustration in our lives, so much conflict in our lives. And there's a tremendous possibility for a radical transformation of our understanding. Where we go from this egocentric view of things to a selfless view, to a selfless understanding. We'll be talking much more about this in the talks during the retreat. It's very, it's very difficult to understand in concept. It is very much a part of what happens in the practice. We begin to develop insight into impermanence, into insecurity, into selflessness. So we open up what is closed we balance what is reactive, we investigate what's hidden, we explore what's hidden. And the tools for doing this, the way we accomplish this, is through the effort to be mindful, the effort to pay attention. We start with the breath, we'll be expanding to include all the different aspects of our experience, And as many times as the mind forgets, and as many times as the mind goes off, it's simply to come back again. The effort to bring the mind back, the effort to use the mental noting, the mental labeling. Generally, people don't like to do that. It's a bother. It is a bother. It's worth doing. The effort to do it arouses energy in the system and it makes the mind more attentive, more alert. So it's an effort that's worth developing. Just one final suggestion about the quality of effort. Because effort is so much at the root of the practice. Without effort, nothing happens. We simply go along in our old conditioned way. And so a tremendous effort is needed to pay pay attention in each moment. But effort can be made in different ways. It can be made with a sense of grimness and struggle, or it can be done with a sense of lightness and delicacy. There is no need to be grim. So there's no need to walk around you know, with the sense of I'm going to be mindful if it kills me. You know, and as the day goes on, feel getting more and more tight and tense. That's not mindfulness. That's grimness. And there's an essential difference. Have you ever seen the Japanese tea ceremony? Or perhaps you know of it. You know. 
it is so beautiful to watch because it is such a manifestation of delicacy and softness and precision. Now, just in watching how the napkin is folded, I mean, there are, I don't know exactly, nine or sixteen or some number of different movements just in folding the napkin. And there's no sense of struggle there, there's no sense of conflict, of tightness. It's very delicate. It's taking care in a soft and gentle way with every movement. Make the whole day a Japanese tea ceremony. Undertake the practice in that spirit. Like every breath, every movement, every step is an invitation to you to be aware. When you do it in that spirit, the effort becomes very light and very soft and very delicate and it brings a tremendous sense of interest to what we're doing. Do you have any questions either about the practice today or about anything in the talk? The question was whether contemplation of the Dharma is not something which is included in the, in the Eightfold Path or in the Path of Practice. There is something which is called mindfulness of the Dharma in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. In a few nights I'm going to give a talk about that, and so I'd rather wait to explain what that is. It's not particularly thinking about it but it's paying attention to different aspects of our experience. Rather than give an abbreviated answer now, if if you can be patient, I'll... Yeah. That's the great temptation. (laughs) It is, I mean, and it is for all of us, because it's true that as the mind gets a little quiet and emptier, it becomes very creative. It's a tremendously creative uh, space. And so all kinds of brilliances (laughs) begin to emerge. Uh, If you dwell in them, it will be a big obstacle to going further and to going deeper. If there is something which is just the most important thing you ever thought of, you know, and is going to save the world, and you can't bear to forget it, only in those circumstances right, you might make a very brief note. So you can just put it aside and without the fear of losing it. For the most part, what you think is brilliant today, with the wisdom of hindsight, will lose some of its luster. Be watchful. The mind is very seductive. You know, and, and that's why the mantra, nothing is worth thinking about, will serve you well. 
further temptation is not so much thinking about, but making a note of those hidden parts of the unconscious, or whatever we call it, that do surface mm -hmm. images and stuff like that. Well, all of that will be included in the field of awareness. So it's not, it's not that we're not going to be looking at that, but rather we don't want to get involved in a conceptual analysis of it. But a lot of things... You know, I don't know whether you... <laughs> since we're talking about it, it's something that comes to mind. Some of you perhaps uh, have seen the movie uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Live on Sunset Strip. And in it, in this movie, it was after his, after his uh, bout with, uh, you know, being burned. He was smoking, uh, and the, the pipe exploded, and he was burned. And he was talking about his addiction to the pipe, and then about what happened. And he went through this wonderful routine in the movie where the pipe was speaking to him, you know, and the pipe would say, "Come on, Richard, you know, just once more." Wouldn't it be fun? <laughs> no. And the pipe goes on and on and on in all its seductive voices. Watch out for the voice of the pipe. We all have our own pipe. Right? And the voice is very seductive. And so it takes a tremendous sense of purpose right, in terms of what you're doing here. Because it's not to say that these kind of creative... Mm, forays are not useful in other situations, but they don't serve this purpose. What we want to do is to, to focus all of the energy in a very powerful way to begin to see the momentariness of phenomena, to begin to penetrate to deeper and deeper levels of this mind and body and seeing that what the, the constituents of this is a process that's arising and passing thousands of times a moment. It's just so quick, so... And it's from seeing that, from penetrating to that, that we lose the sense of this being some solid I, some solid self. But in order to see that, we have to refine our perception and just stay in the moment, noticing in each moment the arising and passing away of phenomena. To the degree that we get lost in thought, no matter how creative, we don't see that. And so it doesn't serve the purpose. So one last question. Often we will come to a different level of perception and understanding and following that the mind may conceptualize it. But it's not the concept which is the insight. It's the direct intuitive seeing. The concept may follow. Mm -hmm. But it's not the concept that's particularly important. It's the experience it's the intuition, it's the understanding of it. You'll see. I mean, <laughs> be patient. Uh, just a couple of last reminders. Know that it's very difficult. It is not an easy thing to do. And so What's needed is a tremendous amount of respect for oneself and one's willingness to undertake this because it is the most difficult mm, transformation of mind that we're engaged in. There'll be many, many difficulties. That's the challenge. They're all workable. There's nothing which is outside of the practice. But it takes a tremendous amount of patience and softness and gentleness and perseverance, where you just stay with it. 
See if you can do it in a delicate way, where you take every experience as part of your practice, you pay careful attention with softness and with gentleness. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.